uh, now you have the rise of things like Black Lives Matter and a lot of like social and political awareness of what's been happening systemically and historically and now and then the 1619 project and then now critical race theory is ruining the world you know what i'm saying so it's just the same sort of like this is always the response the responses has consistently been silent you This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Propaganda. He's an artist, poet, author, coffee aficionado, artist, and musician. Prop, thank you for joining the conversation. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for saying artist twice, too. I mean, I like that. <laughs> Double artist. Uh, so uh, most of us are are good at one thing, not five or six things. So uh, what's your secret? <laughs> Be just above just above a C plus and a B minus at a lot of stuff uh, collectively makes you a superstar, but just like, just to um, never master anything is good enough to pass. Just make the team. That's all you got to do. You got to be a star to make the team. I don't know. I feel like you could also add like um, cinematographer to it as well. I've been watching some of your videos in preparation for our conversation and, uh, Got some good good stuff that's out there. Hey, if you had to if you had to pick one of those things, just one of those things you could do for the rest of your life, which one do you think you would pick? Oh uh, yeah, no, nah, that's unanswerable. Like <laughs> I've been asked that so many times, and I'm like, I don't know if I could, man. Like, 
yeah, I don't think I could land on one thing. I've, uh, I've tried to a few times because you're just like, especially when you're trying to like shape, you know, subconsciously like how the world views you. You're like, well, no, I'm this. And then you kind of lean into that thing and then you're like, eh, I'm kind of bored. I'm also that, you know, <laughs> you're just like, yeah, no, nah, I can't do it. I can't pick. As I sip on a cup of coffee, I think I would probably pick the uh, coffee aficionado. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's like, that's actually, a, yeah, maybe maybe coffee forever. I might retire in the coffee. <laughs> so, um, you know, for those that aren't familiar with your story, uh, you know, that maybe just uh, listen to your to some of your music, uh, spread some of your poetry. Um, you know, how did you get into this? Walk us through your story. Yeah, man. Uh, really, a lot has to do with just the backdrop of Los Angeles, you know, my age group, kind of what was going on here. Uh, you know, you got this like lively sort of hip hop scene, poetry scene, skateboarding, you know, all in the backdrop of just like, you know, California gang culture, just all this happening. Um, you find something, you fall in love with it. And for me, like I fell in love, like I, I fell in love with hip hop, you know, and, and all that it was, graffiti and breakdancing, you know, and, and at the time, like, even like riding skateboards was even a part of, you know, it was part of hip hop, it was part of the experience, you know, so um, it all started there, it started at the lunch tables, you know, in school and, you know, and, uh, and then went to the open mics, you know, and then, um, and then, so for me, I, I, I kind of came from like, you know, just that sort of battle rap kind of scene. Um, and then in college, I was, I had a crush on a girl and she suggested poetry. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll try it. And then I went and then I fell in love with poetry, you know, so it kind of like, kind of went from there. But yeah, I had no like delusions of grandeur. Like I'm, again, I'm from LA, you know, you're in the backdrop of Hollywood, everybody everybody's a star everybody believes they're a star you know and you just and you know that like the most talented people you know still work at a coffee shop you know so it's like you just have no delusions you know i didn't really think that i would end up as a career path it's like again like riding skateboards like everybody rides skateboards but you're like we're not gonna go to the x games you know <laughs> uh, but but some of us do you know and it's like it's uh it's cool it's like I, that was basically the experience and then you just kind of you know you go off to school go off to college go get a job and then one day the phone rings and then it doesn't stop ringing and that's kind of what happened with how i got to where i am now like the phone rang and it just didn't stop ringing from that point on so you've got a new book Terraform, and we should invite readers yeah. to consider the many challenges we face in our culture to think about how we can build a more equitable future. Um, you wrote, if we aren't careful, Mars will be just another gold rush, another pre-Columbian American scraping, raping, scratching, gouging, making up lines and screaming mine into newly made oxygen. Take us back to the, the conception of this book. What was going on in your life that you needed to put pen to paper and create this book uh, for the world? Yeah, uh, it was a couple years back. Um, my record label, which you guys would know, uh, you know, Humble Beast, 
um, was transitioning. Uh, two of the, you know, executive leaders are kind of moving into pastoral positions. Um, and they, you know, these guys are like my best friends. So it wasn't, I'm happy for them. It's like, it's not like, oh, they left me. It was like, no, they, this was the next season of their life. And I'm excited about it. That said, it left me without a, <laughs> nobody in the office, you know, as, a, as an artist. So there was a sort of, okay, I need to think about what are my next moves. My manager transitioned, so he was gone. And then at the end of that year, my DJ died. He passed away. So I was in this place where I was like, uh, this, I'm, I'm, I'm starting over, you know, and found a new manager uh, who I'd been kind of talking to for a while. And then he asked me a question. Um, hey, what do you want to talk about for the next 10 years? And I was like, dang, 10 years? Okay, uh, this better be a really big concept. And came across the term uh, terraform, you know, science fiction word um, having to do with uh, when you find a distant planet, um, the process of making that planet livable to support human life is called terraforming. And I just thought like, man, this is kind of what's happening in my life and my, my, my passion about just culture. I want to talk about culture. I want to talk about cultures made and moved and our role in it because we are it, you know, and just, so the word itself was like, like just the anchoring for like what I was like, this is just what my next body of work is going to be. And then as we started talking about, you know, creating that work, I was like, dang, this is actually, no, this is really what I want to talk about. And that's kind of how the, the springboard for the book came to be was like, what if we saw earth in our own lives as terraforming projects? Yeah, now I got something. <laughs> and that's kind of where the book came from. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. When, um, when the publisher sent me the book, I got really super nerdy and excited because, you know, that's a concept from science fiction. I, you know, I think it traces all the way back to H.G. Wells, um, you know, and all, all these nerdy science fiction books that I read growing up as a kid talking about this. I was like, oh, well, he wrote a sci-fi book. That's fabulous. And then start to dig into it. So, so take that concept a little deeper. Tell us what you mean um, uh, around creating this arc around this idea of terraforming. Yeah, what I mean is like it's it's building a livable world, right? Uh, so when you say world, what do you mean by world? I'm I'm saying I mean the actual planet. Like if you know we're if the science is correct, within 30 years we're going to be out of fresh water. So it looks like it's time. Like our Earth is becoming less and less livable, you know. And so there's that. Then there's the the socio-political you know, kind of area we're in, any nerd and anybody, like even a freshman level understanding of like world history and geopolitics understand that America is like, you, we're looking at a nuclear option here. Like this, like democracies don't, can't, don't last like this. Like we're empires, like we're on borrowed time. Like empires, every nation in Europe has collapsed at some point, you know? So I'm like, we're, we're overdue guys. You know, so, so just that sort of reality. There's the, the idea that like our families are stretched in. We were in a global pandemic where, you know, our, uh, like stress levels and depression levels are, you know, all time high. And it's like, 
we need to think about building a world. We need some collective prophetic imagination. Now, I don't know what those, the answer is, but I know all of our structures that we're in now, we made them up. Like there's no, there's no force field at the 47th parallel that separates Canada from America. It's not real. The border's made up. We made that up, you know, uh, socialists, uh, capitalists, you know, democratic republic, monarch, communist. We made it up. So and since we made it up and it seems to be hurting us, don't you think we could make up something that's not going to hurt us? You know, so let's let's make up something else. So like I wanted to dig into that to say, like, ultimately, man. If all if all of our infrastructures are made up. Let's make up something better. I don't know what that is, but I'm saying let's get creative. And the book was designed to like just sort of suggest creative creative ways and and things and things to think about life like it doesn't have to be the way it is that's kind of like if i if i were to drill down that's what i was hoping people would walk away from to be like yo like just imagine something better like expand your imagination you know so before we get to the many uh, ideas and challenges of, of the book let, let's talk about the book itself um this book is different than anything I've ever read. The look, the feel, the design, the layout. On, on one page, you're giving poetic prose, and on another page, you're calling out social decay. Um, how did you create this style? Uh, I, it's, it's almost like I thought of it as a show. Like, if I were, if you were to call me in to do a feature, like, hey, Prop's going to perform a poetry set. Well, I wouldn't just get up and spout poems. I mean, I would talk in between, you know, and I would try to make it engaging enough to where there's a story arc in the performance. So since that's where I come from, like I come from a performance side, uh, I just approached the book the same way. I would spit a couple of poems, then I would stop and talk. Then I would ask some questions and then I'd move on to the next poem. And then I'd spit a couple of those, then I would talk a little more, you know what I mean? So I kind of, thought of it like that, like that's the way I want to think. I knew I didn't want to write like a, I wanted to write a book you could go back to that you can jump in the middle of and still get something out of, but not something that you would just like devour and be like, yep, got it. I wanted something that you could go back to. So that's why the illustrations are there. And you know, the way that it's broke up, broken up um, was really around that. But it was ultimately like, I, I kind of didn't think of it as like a style as much as of like, well, what would I naturally do if I were talking to somebody? How would it go? Well, it would go like this. So the poetry itself, you know, reading each one, I'm, I'm going through this process, settling into my soul, simultaneously filling me with hope, inspiring me to dream, and at times making me laugh, and at other times just gutting me to my core. Um, how do you write prose with such... I don't even know how to put it into words. What, what's your creative process? How do you find a place of synergy to write so effectively on so many different levels of the human experience? Man, I don't know. You know, like I, you know, I have the same sort of like doubts and insecurities about myself that like any writer does. You know, I know my process is like deep and long observation. I just observe 
for a long time. I contemplate for a long time. I absorb a lot of content from a lot of different fields of study. You know, like I listen to, you know, pods on dark matter and astronomy and photons. And I also listen to, you know, War is a Racket by Smedley Butler, you know, from, from like the 1920s, you know what I'm saying? So you just absorb so much stuff because I'm so interested in so many things that when it's time to sit down and write or talk about something, there's such a, I try to have like a deep well of diverse things to talk about to really bring in sort of the point that I'm doing. But like, I don't, I oftentimes like a lot of the pushback or the critique I get whether it's from my homies or from editors is like, this is super deep, but it's so deep that I don't know what you're talking about. And I won't know until maybe five years from now, is there a way that you can stop like speaking Martian, like bring it back to us. So I think that this book was me and these, these types of things was me trying to like, not speak in such a stream of consciousness or blow your mind storytelling, but just like, okay, get to your point. Like, what is the point you're trying to make? But ultimately it's like, it just comes from observation, man. I just, I just observe myself and each other for a long time and then sit down and write stuff. Let's, um, let's talk about the, a lot of the issues you raise um, in the book that's going on in our world. And we'll talk about some of them in a little bit more depth. Um, America has some really bad stories um, that it does oh, not yeah. want to embrace. Uh, the systemic or systematic annihilation of the native population, chattel slavery system, the first era of Jim Crow laws through the mass incarceration of black Americans in the South to the new Jim Crow laws of, mm. of police brutality. Um, does this last year of a nationwide conversation about systemic racism give you hope that these bad stories are finally being told and heard for what they are um i don't know if hope's the word that's <laughs> funny uh, it well there's two parts of me right there's the part that is like you know there's a poem in the in the um in the book called the cynical imagine you know and it's a and it's kind of like, not bitter in the sense that I'm like, ain't never gonna change, you know what I'm saying? It's, I'm not bitter in that sense, but I am, I do have a sense of cynicism in that, um, how do I say this? The response to our reckoning, which has been very exciting, uh, and also met with the same type of backlash. Like when we talk about like, okay, when at the end of chattel slavery, when black people got the right to vote, we elected Ulysses S. Grant. And there was a wave of black people that started putting black people in office. And then came the black code and Jim Crow and poll taxes and voter IDs, a way to stop, you know, this process, right? Uh, and then when it came to the 60s with the civil rights movement, in comes the gerrymandering and I'm not gerrymandering in comes uh, filibusters and making sure we never actually get to actually voting it. And then and then 
uh, now you have the rise of things like Black Lives Matter and a lot of like social and political awareness of what's been happening systemically and historically and now and then the 1619 project and then now critical race theory is ruining the world you know what i'm saying so it's just the same sort of like this is always the response the response is, has consistently been silent you you know and it and to me it's like and then now like the new types of voter suppression that's happening i'm like this is the same playbook so my hope is that I think after you go, after you keep pulling from the same bag, that more people are aware that, oh yeah, this is the same playbook, you know. Oh, we've we've been here before. Oh, this is dumb. Okay, never mind. You know what I'm saying? So my hope is 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 in the fact that like the play is becoming more obvious to more people, but my cynicism is like, yeah, there's the play again. So I don't know if it's like, am I more hopeful? But I am, I think I'm more, I'm happy to see that there are more people conscious of stuff that we've been knowing for years. Like even bringing up the critical race theory thing, it's like, you know, this, this like, this being a hot topic in culture is hilarious to me because it's like, well, it's a 60 year old concept that it's like, you just, Y'all just got in the room, like, you know, like this is it. We've already flushed this out, like, you know, and it's just, it's so it's so it's like somebody saying, you know, you know, this, you know, I heard of this thing called capitalism. And I really think it's like, you just heard of capitalism. Like that's this is your first time hearing this word. And now it's a big topic. And you think everybody needs to talk about something we've been existing in for hundreds of years. I'm supposed to stop what I'm doing because you worried about this. You know what I'm saying? So I just feel like to me, it's like, I feel like that this new season is, has brought a season of, of people being more aware that we're in the same playbook. So I think in that sense, I'm hopeful. Looking to learn about pastoral care in order to enhance your skills as a minister, lay leader, deacon, or member of a community? BSK's Pastoral Care Certificate allows students to earn credentials in pastoral care through a short three-course certificate. Students working towards a certificate in pastoral care will integrate knowledge and experience from both courses and experience in order to develop deeper skills in caring for persons who are in crisis and are suffering. The certificate is a great strategy to improve one's care and counseling as a congregational pastor and other congregational leaders. It will prepare persons to serve in chaplaincy settings, whether paid or volunteer, where a degree and professional certificate as a chaplain is not required, such as law enforcement, fire departments, some prisons, and extended care facilities. It requires nine hours graduate credit that may be rolled into a graduate degree program. BSK certificates may be continuing education for those already earned a graduate degree or starting place for those considering an MDiv. Learn more at bsk.edu backslash options. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. 
For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So how do we how do we more effectively tell the bad stories? I mean, how do we talk to people about, you know, as you talk about critical race theory, I mean, in a sense, the predominant white culture that doesn't want to feel bad, doesn't want to own um, that they are inheritors of a rot mm-hmm. system. Um, how do we, you know, I'm thinking about like the the local church ministers that might be listening to this conversation that want to yeah. engage in healthy dialogue to tell these bad stories, but to tell them in an effective way so that people don't immediately turn their eyes and tune their ears out. And we find ourselves in this place a year from now, a generation from now, you know, how, so how do we effectively tell these bad stories? Um, there's part of me that says, you know, the, that addresses like the elephant in the room where I'm like, that's a white person problem. And in the sense that I'm like, I don't know. You know I mean? Like y'all got to talk amongst yourselves, you know? Uh, so there's part of me that says that has that answer. You know what I mean? The other part is like, I think so much of our faith is about, and this is the part that baffles me. So much of our faith is about having to deal with and reconcile sin, confessing it, bringing it to the cross and seeing your sins be forgiven. But we all understand within the faith that sin is both individual and systemic, right? Like, I mean, I, I mean, I thought we did. If, if that's the case, then what's the cross for if it wasn't, if we don't have a systemic problem? We said in one man all died, right? That means system. You know what I mean? Like if inherited sin is, means you have a systemic problem. But you had to look at it. We all, if you profess the faith at some point, looked at both. You looked at your personal sin and you acknowledged the systemic problem. So I don't understand why you can't do that when it comes to America. So that's the part where I'm like, I don't know what your problem is. Why can't you see this? You know, um, in the sense that, like you said, nobody wants to feel bad. Well, hell, well then why'd you come to Jesus? You know what I mean? Like, what makes you feel worse than the perfect son of man having to crush himself because of your ratchet self? That don't make you feel bad. Made me feel bad. But I leaned in. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, so, but I think ultimately, if I were to put my, my sociological hat on, I would say, I believe, and this is me as an outsider, because I'm not a white male or a white person. I would believe that it is way more comfortable to accept that like racism is exists in the minds of the racist. So if I can, if we can eliminate the racist, if we could just get that person out of power or let them die off. Like maybe your uncle Dave, you know, at Thanksgiving is just like, ah, oh, he's archaic and stupid, you know, I think there's a belief among whiteness that like, if we just get rid of those people, then we're good. You know what I'm saying? So, so because that's a much better thought than 
damn, I actually really do benefit by just my sheer participation in being American and a white American. I actually benefit from structures that was set up to benefit me. I don't, I don't, I don't receive them all. I still struggle. I don't feel the way that these systems feel. I didn't, I would not have put no, put another human being in chains, but I'm, I, but the reality is like, I mean, it's how we got here. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I, 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 I feel as though from a pastoral perspective, it's like, yo, that's what you signed up for. You need to pastor people through this moment. You know, you pastor them through their own sin. I don't understand why this is any different, you know, uh, because the people of color in your, in your, in your congregation been facing this ugly truth their whole life. We don't have the luxury of saying, I don't want to talk about it. We don't have the luxury of being like, oh, it's just of this or it's just of that. I've been facing it my whole life. So the fact that you have to wrestle with this is the, or that you don't have to wrestle with this, that you have to say, man, it's just going to turn these people off. I know I got to tell them, but it's just going to turn them off. That's a product of being white. Like you get, that you get, you get to do that. Like, I don't get to do that. So, so these topics are unavoidable for people of color. You know what I'm saying? Like whether I want to or not, they come up because it's just my life. So in my mind, I honestly don't have a one, two, three for that pastor, except for, I mean, do you not preach on sin? Do you never, do you not preach on stuff that offends people that never happens? And I'm like, I just don't know how faithful to the gospel you are in the first place. If you don't ever talk about, so I'm like, same energy, you know, you just same energy. You understand there's a systemic problem in the human right in the human species. Same piece. There's a systemic problem in the formation of America. Well, I think you hit on it right there at the end. And that is, there's, there's this conception of white evangelicalism that it cares about sin. It does care about sin. It cares about the sins of other people. Yeah. It doesn't care about the sin yeah. of self and the greatest sin among white evangelicals right now is self-righteousness and prideful yeah. blindness. And, and I think that's, yeah. that's the problem is, is uh, the, the lack of acceptance, the lack of self-awareness, the lack of the ability to look within. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in a church that preached hard on sin, hard on personal mm -hmm. reconciliation to God. And I feel nowadays uh, the commentary you hear out of a lot of white evangelical pulpits is more on social, cultural sins and nothing to do with self, um, which, you know, we see in Christ a call to uh, continually sacrifice ourselves, to, to carry our cross, to become more like Christ. And so mm -hmm. the root of that, the root of that, why, why these conversations are so hard and why they're not happening is because of self-righteousness and blindness. Um, yeah. But you challenge us and in so the book. so that's what I'm saying. It's, yeah, so it's like, that's what I'm saying. As a pastor, it's like, you can't spot that? And why you not, are you calling it out? Like, are you are you leading by example? Are you going, God, I'm, you know, I'm, this is the ugly, and I'm looking at it just like you're looking at it. 
You know, like, I don't, is that happening for you? Anyway, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Go on. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, you're, you're the guest. I'm just here. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, look in the book, you, you call us to tell better stories. And I love the section yeah. on better origin stories. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you wrote the banjo is from West Africa. Appalachian used it to filled filled with uh, used to be filled with runaway slaves. That's why folks music had folk music has banjos. Yep. We made that music to the end. Um, you know, for many yeah. white Americans, they're finally waking up to the reality that their story has been the dominant and uh, pervasive narrative. And, and this new realization mm-hmm. is waking them to the reality that there are other narratives. So how do we, who yeah. are not used to hearing the story of other cultures and ways of life, open our ears to the uh, authentically to to hear the stories of others and how do we let the truth of other stories reshape our reality as we know it man i think you i think you kind of hit it on the head too like in the sense that um the the self-righteousness the accepting like i think that there's a truly a true unraveling of identity when you realize that like, yeah, your story isn't the story, it's one of many. And there were other characters in there that saw this stuff differently. Um, And having to swallow that and then accept it. In my mind, I'm like, a person should have, I know I do, I don't wanna say should, but I am like insatiably curious, you know? And so I'm always curious, like I want to know those other stories, I want to, to see those other angles. I just think that makes life that much more interesting, that much more beautiful. Um, I think from a theological perspective, it's like, this is you, whether it's becoming all things to all men or just experiencing the fullness of earthling to be fully human, you know, as you gotta like, like C.S. Lewis says, like reading helps me see with a thousand eyes, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like hearing other stories. It's like, yeah, you get a brand new set of eyes I think one of the one of the roadblocks to that is like is just this like zero sum game, which basically says, you know, which kind of the the pushback of our sort of like understanding of absolute truth. I think we've applied like um, economic theory to it as far as like the scarcity of truth, where it's like the zero sum game. Like if they're true, if what they say is true, then that means that what I believe is a lie, and it's like no no that's that's a zero sum that's a binary that you don't have to exist in you know what i'm saying like and i think that that so coming so coming to it with a sense of self where i'm saying i'm not saying that your story is invalid i'm saying it's incomplete because you weren't the only person there so i think that to me it's having that sense of like well i'm okay because i know what i experienced i'm not saying that my experience is invalid i'm saying again it's incomplete now that said again i think you know please 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 hear me when i say this like i don't say this as dismissive i say this as like i am trying to understand a position that i don't get i don't understand why this is so hard for white people like i just don't get it you know what i mean like why why is it so hard to hear the obvious which is America had slaves and 
a lot of the things that you believe are because your stories were incomplete. You've never heard a native story. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't understand why that's so hard. Like, just, it is what it is. So when you ask me, like, and I've been asked before, like, well, then how can we go this, this, and this? I'm like, well, I don't understand how you got there in the first place. I don't know why it's so hard for you. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, and I can only tell you what I have done to overcome this and my observation of, of your struggle from the outside says, okay, like I said in the book, like, hey, you need to hear other stories. Now, here they are. Now, I don't have, like, like, it, like throughout the book, like, my book is more descriptive rather than prescriptive in the sense that, like, I'm just describing stuff and giving suggestions. I'm, what I'm not trying to tell you is like, here's your A, B, and C. This is what you should do. This is what you should do. This is because honestly, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know how to open a person's heart short of exposing you to other things. So I think that like, if I were to drill down to be like, to try to answer your question, like, how do you get to, I think it's like, you have, you have to have that exposure, that experience somebody like from, from the top down and from the bottom up willing to express things from other perspectives, to read from, you know, eat from different tables, to read from other authors, to, you know, to, to allow themselves to let the unraveling happen, happening. I think for me, one of the things that really opened my world from my perspective was like being willing to jump off the cliff and just trust that the cro cross is sufficient, but I'll jump off the cliff. I'll read this woman i'll read this man i'll read this indigenous story i'll just do it just jump off the cliff and know that you know christ is sufficient and then you come out the other end and you're like yeah actually i feel like i i understand myself better i understand my neighbor better and i see the beauty of the gospel in a much more shiny way but i think ultimately like you said like telling that banjo story and just letting that be what it is you know, it's beautiful. There's a story in the in the book about uh, one of my aunts, you know, who I'm thinking had these toys at her house for me. And I just always appreciated how much she loved me and took care of me and always had like, you know, things for me because she didn't have any children at the time. It turns out she totally had a stepson that was like years older than me that I had no idea existed and the toys were his so they weren't mine so i had to go does that mean my aunt doesn't love me no it actually means that my aunt has a capacity for love i didn't give her credit for it, it made me love her more so what i'm saying is you you can't let new information unravel you to the point to where you're choosing the darker side i'm saying see the beauty in it you know what i mean see the beauty and the complexity and the image there sitting across from you but i i i know i'm rambling but i feel like i feel like that was my process you know yeah 
By the way, uh, when I read the banjo story the first time, I literally laughed out loud. I actually snotted. I laughed so hard. Um, and <laughs> you know, therefore, I'm quite ashamed that I butchered it when I was retelling it here on the podcast. But uh, <laughs> now you know it. <laughs> um, there's a passage uh, uh, you wrote about soil. You said, sometimes I wonder if mm-hmm. trees produce Wi-Fi, would we treat them better? Uh, too bad. The only product is food and oxygen. In, in the book, you talk about co-creating a more beautiful and true world. What do you mean yeah. by that? Um, I think that there's a dance we can have with the soil. I think that, you know, sort of post-enlightenment kind of renaissance view gave us this sort of like Western European kind of idea of dominion over the land. And I think we took dominion over the land to believe that like, we tell the ground what to do. You know, I put my crops in a very, in rows, it grows. I don't, you know, we don't hunt. No, the animals are here because I'm the dominant species. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not gonna go chase it. No, it stays here. I have dominion. You know what I'm saying? Rather than seeing dominion more as stewardship, more as a dance, you know, that the the sacredness of the soil is this idea that like we didn't make it, we didn't tell it what to do, it just does it. It's a gift to all of us. It belongs to creator. It belongs to God. You know what I'm saying? And we have the privilege of working with what God already created. You know, you can't make a seed germinate. You just put it in the ground. It just happens. So, but if you don't put it in the ground, it don't grow. So that's the idea of like the co-creation to me. It's already sacred. It's already beautiful. It's a gift. Let's dance. Rather than thinking, I am going to force it to be something it's not. I'm dancing, you know? So I got the term dance really from like, it's from Native American views, indigenous views that they would say, yeah, we dance with nature. I'm not, a, I'm not at war with it. I dance with it. And that to me is so much more beautiful way to think about treating God's creation. It's like, I'm not war with it, I'm dancing, you know? So in co-creation in the sense that like, whether it's forming healthy families, whether it's, you know, raising well-adjusted kids, whether it's, you know, uh, not just like tapping Earth's veins for oil, you know what I'm saying? That's what I meant, like even Mars being just another gold rush. If we're, if, if, if we do Mars the way we did Earth, we finna kill Mars. You know what I mean? So I'm like, it's almost like having, I, okay, this is gonna be such a, a douchebag way to explain this, but like, if you're looking at like your trail of like exes and you're like, God, that girl was crazy or man, that man crazy. Like, man, I can't believe this. It was so toxic. It's like, okay, why? You know what I mean? Maybe it's you, you know what I'm saying? Like, so if you're, if you bring in the same practices to a new place, you're going to end up, the new place going to look like the old place, you know? So that's not, that's not co-creating. That's individually destroying. So I think the idea of co-creating is this idea of understanding that we are in rhythm, we are in dance, we are, we are, we are in, we're dancing with creation. 
you know, um, we're dancing with God. Like this is this is the, the system God gave and God put us in the middle of this thing. And we have a we have the joy, the privilege of working the system the way that the system was designed to work. And if we and I think if we approach that, whether it's finding resources, whether it's growing our food, whether it's taking care of our families and even seeing ourselves in the same way, I think that we participate in this idea of this like beautiful co-creation. Let's talk about toxic masculinity. Um, you mm -hmm. wrote, maybe it has to do with the playground policing boys to do. We figure out our masculinity or if you cry, that means something is serious. You don't cry if something is bad. I often believe that tears are used as a tool of manipulation. I think there are, are generations of men that have been misinformed and misshaped to believe masculinity mm -hmm. looks a certain way. Um, in what ways yeah. have you experienced uh, a deconstruction of what you thought was masculinity and, and what new things are being rebuilt? That's good, man. I think uh, one is that is like, I kind of came from not so much like the jock kind of like warrior class, kind of like masculinity. I came from the like workaholic <laughs> version of masculinity where like we're supposed to produce. Your man is a man is word is all you got. It's his honor. It's what you left for your family. It's like, you know, you should come home exhausted because you like conquered the day. So it's more like this like workaholic kind of like conqueror, you know? Um, so I think I kind of came from that and it was always in conflict with the fact that like I was raised with such brilliant leading women, you know, that so I kind of knew like a good amount of just sort of this like sort of chauvinistic kind of like approach to masculinity. I knew that was like not that wasn't it. I knew that wasn't it because that just wasn't our home. You know, I, I just didn't have that. But I think the display of emotions, um, the willingness to listen, the need to be correct like what does it mean to lead does lead mean final say does lead mean you know is it so stratified like is it such a zero-sum game so i think that one of the ways that i've learned to sort of like walk away from some of the toxic practices and and i say this with the idea of like i don't know what masculinity is i kind of just know what doesn't serve us you know what i mean and i think one of the things that doesn't serve us was yeah like a display of emotion like you can be sad like it's okay to like crying is a normal human experience you know and and that like how much of the the parameters i've put on myself was just because of like you know, Todd in seventh grade, or I, I thought that Dwayne was going to make fun of me if I wore this, you know, and I'm like, I don't even remember Dwayne's last name. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, why do I even care about something a sixth grader thinks from when we were in sixth grade? Like I've kept those stories for myself and just was like, I'm obeying this imaginary person who I don't even know where he is. You know, so I think that it's been a process of letting go of a lot of those sort of practices and being willing to sort of learn new things and learn from new sources and seeing what I'm valuing when I look at like men that I admire and what I admire about them. It's not what I used to admire. Like, I don't care what you can bench press. I think it's dope, but it's like, I don't want to be like you because of that. Like, I, I admire this person's gentleness. I admire their humility. I admire their confidence. And I'm finding like the type of person I want to be is more like these men rather than those men. It's funny. My, I was just talking to my mom about like my, which is also in the book, my soiree into like reform, like the, you know, the young restless and reformed kind of like, you know, 2012 to 14 kind of like time where I kind of soireed into that, into that world. And I remember feeling like, but I don't like these dudes. Like, I love what you're saying. Like it's, it's stimulating me, you know, intellectually and I'm enjoying like the, the academic rigor of what we're talking about. But I feel like you're not producing the type of man I want to be. So, but they were like, this is real masculine, you know, because like, you know, the church is so girly. It's so yada, yada. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I kind of like that song. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, what's wrong with crying? Sometimes I feel like I need to cry. Like, it just reminded me of like, this is just, you ain't no different than the locker room. This is the, you're the football team. You're the dudes I avoided. You're the wrestling. You're the dudes I made sure I didn't hang with in high school. Cause this is annoying, man. Like everything, everything's a pissing contest with y'all. So I found that like my theology was making me a person that I don't want to be was the conversation I just had with my mom. And, and that for me was like the click into being like, man, I think, I think I need to, I think I need to redefine or I need to start looking for other examples of what man means to me, you know? And, and that was, for me, that was the unraveling. Cause I was like, I don't, I don't want to be that. You don't seem happy. You don't feel joyous. And I'm like, I want to be like any other human, happy and joyous. This isn't doing it. I feel like I'm always in a fight with y'all. I don't want to always be in a fight. I want to enjoy myself. I want my children to feel like they can come with me, come to me, not only physically, but emotionally. Like, I realize my daughter, half the stuff that my daughter is going through, she's never shared with me. I only know because her mom told me. And I'm like, I'm not safe to her. That sucks, because I love this little girl. I want to be safe to her. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, then I really need to rethink, you know, I don't think that like healthy masculinity is femininity. I'm not saying that, but I am saying you should at least have a full range of emotions. You know what I'm saying? And that's been really what I've been like ultimately learning was like, yo, it's okay to have a full range of emotions. 
let's talk about some of the projects in the book. And I think this is one of the more brilliant natures of this book that certainly, you know, for a lot of people when they're um, taking in art, when they're reading poetry, uh, those things, yeah, they call you to introspection, but not necessarily directly in the source that you're reading. And, and instead of just asking your readers to be passive recipients of your wisdom, you're calling us to take action on everything you're teaching. Yeah. Uh, consider write a love poem to your neighbor or trace your own body for scars. Uh, tell us the idea behind yeah. these projects in the book and and what's your favorite project you assign us? Um. Well, the idea actually came from a manager because he said, kind of said the same thing. It's like, we need a to-do because these are like, bring it back to earth again, bring it back to earth. Like, but what do I do with all this stuff? It's dope, but what do I do? So it was kind of a challenge from like the crew. The crew was like, man, you should do this. And then that's when I sat down and did it. Um, I think the, uh, if I were to pick a favorite, it would probably be your Tell Me Yours poem. Um where you just kind of go back and just like run those names, those places, those cities, you know, for better or for worse, that have made you who you are. Because I feel like it was one of the most healthy and healing kind of processes for myself was writing that. So I think that like, if I had to pick a favorite, it'd be that one. And then probably also would be like, which is a quicker one is if you live in, you know, North America or Australia or New Zealand to find what your native tribal grounds are, like where you actually are, you know, and I found that like, we, this is the historical Tongva tribe lands is Los Angeles and just being like, oh my God, like, I love LA, but it wasn't always LA, you know, like, let me, what was it? Who were you people? Like, you know what I'm saying? Where, like, so those things to me, are probably my two favorites. What's your hope for your readers? Imagination, that their imagination is sparked, you know, and that they start, that they have their like, that seed is like, yo, I, it don't have to be like this. You know, really that's my hope is like that seed, that, that germ is in you, that you're just imagination sparked. It ain't gotta be this way. Our guest is Propaganda. You can follow his work at prophiphop.com and on social media. The book is Terraform, Building a Better World. Purchase it wherever books are sold. Prop, thank you for making time to have this conversation. We are uh, incredibly grateful for your call to dream, to create words, culture, action, and a world full of possibilities. Man, thank you. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. 
Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cvf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.